Could the presence of U.S. presidential candidates Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump signal that Wall Street and other elites are losing their grip on the American political landscape? The Sanders represent a fundamental departure from America's imperialist foreign policy. In what ways is the system being rigged to secure Hillary Clinton as the next U.S. president? What mechanisms are in place to ensure the next president will comply with the demands of the powers that be? Is there any chance that the will of the American people can prevail over the special big-moneyed interests that dominate the White House and Capitol Hill? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we take a look at the U.S. presidential campaign, but with a focus on how the body politic is being manipulated and who benefits. We speak with journalist, historian, and author William Bloom, and with writer, political activist, and ecological campaigner Mark Robinowitz. On this week's program, U.S. Campaign 2016, Searching for Democracy in a Broken System. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 18th, 2016. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. So, with the ceasefire agreement barely holding on, the peace talks taking place at the United Nations and the threat of a Turkish GCC invasion of Syria looming in the background, the question now is whether or not the situation will gradually trend toward peace and de-escalation, or whether it will in fact escalate to a wider war between the opposing forces in Syria, as well as other interested international actors. After all, Staffan de Mistura, the UN Special Envoy for the Syria Crisis, has already described the talks as essentially the only thing holding back an even wider, full-scale war in Syria. While he made no effort to clarify what he meant by comment, the world outside of the Western countries are generally aware of the American agenda in Syria. Informed observers generally recognize that the NATO bloc, along with Israel and the GCC, are not content to simply admit they have been rooted, routed, pick up their ball, and go home. They continue to adapt to their own methods in much the same way as the Russians and will respond as soon as they have surveyed the chessboard and have selected their next move. That comes from the article, What the Russian Withdrawal from Syria means and what it doesn't by Brandon Turbeville, posted March 16th, originally appearing at brandonturbeville.com. The Israeli government is having to plan how to deal with a Trump presidency and the loss of $6 billion a year in U.S. military equipment, arms, loans, grants, 
and gifts from an APAC-led Congress. Just as Benjamin Netanyahu is wondering how to replace the EU, his primary trading market in the event that Europe decides to implement sanctions against his continued illegal occupation of Palestinian land, he now faces the possibility of having to deal with a Republican president who will certainly not be a patsy in a lobby-controlled White House. The current global attitude to Israel's continued illegal settlement policy has now hardened into one of angry impatience at Netanyahu's obstructive tactics in regard to the establishment of an independent state of Palestine to accommodate a dispossessed indigenous people of over 5 million. Also, as a consequence of Israel's six-year blockade of essential medical, food, and building supplies into Gaza in close cooperation with the Egyptian dictator Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, 1.8 million civilians are still living in a bombed-out enclave reduced to rubble and with only enough food to keep the entire population at just above subsistence level, atrocities perpetrated by the Israeli government. However, there now appears to be the possibility of a consensus for a UN resolution to force Israel to comply with international law and for the imposition of a deadline for compliance, failing which U.S. and E.U. bilateral trade with the Israeli state could be drastically restricted. That there seems to be a paradigm shift in the international attitude towards Israeli policy in the occupied territories is an essential factor in Middle East politics and future peace, and with a Trump presidency, that will almost certainly become a priority for the United States and for the European Union. That comes from the article, A Donald Trump presidency could mean Israel losing $6 billion in U.S. aid? By Anthony Bell Chambers, posted March 16th. Washington will not lift the sanctions imposed after the reunification of Crimea with Russia until Moscow decides to return Crimea to Ukraine, the spokesman for the U.S. State Department said. Crimea, which has a predominantly ethnically Russian population, ceded from Ukraine to rejoin Russia two years ago, following a referendum on March 16th in which over 96% of voters supported the move. We will not accept the redrawing of borders by force in the 21st century. Sanctions related to Crimea will remain in place as long as the occupation continues. We again call on Russia to end that occupation and return Crimea to Ukraine, John Kirby said in a statement Wednesday. Well, that comes from the article, Washington will retain sanctions until Russia returns Crimea. John Kerry says we will not accept redrawing borders. By Sputnik, posted March 16th. The curious mystery surrounding the shootdown of Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 over eastern Ukraine on July 17, 2014, gets more curious and more curious as the U.S. government and Dutch investigators balk at giving straightforward answers to the simplest of questions, even when asked by the families of the victims. Adding to the mystery, Dutch investigators have indicated that the Dutch Safety Board did not request radar information from the United States, even though Secretary of State John Kerry indicated just three days after the crash that the U.S. government possessed data 
It pinpointed the location of the suspected missile launch that allegedly downed the airliner, killing all 298 people of, on board. Although Kerry claimed that the U.S. government knew the location almost immediately, Dutch investigators now say they hope to identify the spot sometime, quote, in the, next, in the second half of the year, unquote, meaning that something as basic as the missile launch site might remain unknown to the public more than two years after the tragedy. The families of the Dutch victims, including the father of a Dutch-American citizen, have been pressing for an explanation about the slow pace of the investigation and the apparent failure to obtain relevant data from the U.S. and other governments. I spent time with the family members in early February at the Dutch Parliament in The Hague as opposition parliamentarians, led by Christian Democrat Peter Omtzigt, unsuccessfully sought answers from the government about the absence of radar data and other basic facts. That comes from the article, The Ever-Curiouser MH17 Case, by Robert Perry, posted March 17th, originally appearing at Consortium News. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Politics has been called a rigged game, with elites using money and organizational resources to pull the puppet strings of most candidates for high office. However, the entrance into the race for U.S. president of candidates Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, who both reject funding from Wall Street, threatens to challenge that truism. This week's Global Research News Hour attempts to cut through the propaganda and jargon and assess what real options are out there for making substantive and humane political change. I first connected with a longtime critic of U.S. foreign policy who recently wrote an article suggesting Hillary Clinton might be a worse choice than Trump. Well, we're very honored to welcome to the program William Bloom. He is an author and critic of U.S. foreign policy. He abandoned his position with the U.S. State Department almost half a century ago to become a vocal critic of the U.S. foreign policy in the wake of their actions in Vietnam. He's been a freelance journalist and helped found and edit Washington's first alternative newspaper, the Washington Free Press. He's the author of five books, including the 1995 classic Killing Hope, U.S. military and CIA interventions since World War II, as well as the more recent America's Deadliest Export, Democracy, the Truth About U.S. Foreign Policy and Everything Else. William Bloom is also the author of several articles which appear on his website, williambloom.org. And uh, he is also a, uh, many of his articles uh, appear on the Global Research website. So, uh, William Bloom, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, thank you very much. Okay, so uh, interesting times. Uh, we've got uh, this uh, presidential election campaign, but I, I just wanted to maybe give, just to put it in a bit of a historical context. I know you're a long-standing critic of U.S. foreign policy. And so in that regard, I, I guess I'm just kind of curious to see uh, if there are any, elections uh, in, in the last 50 years or so that uh, you 
you might be inclined to point to as 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 interesting in terms of a potential turning points turning point and what well in, in terms of uh you know maybe potentially being interesting in, in any capacity oh. in terms of you know actually having a, a re- making a real difference or having where there's a, a lot at stake well the only candidates uh, i would feel inclined to vote for in the past 50 years were third party candidates uh Ralph Nader a few times and uh the woman who's the head of the Green Party, uh, Stein. What's her first name? Jill. Jill. Uh, Jill Stein. Uh, I think this coming election, I think I, I'll probably vote for her. Um, and But I haven't voted for a Democrat or a Republican since 1964 when I voted for Johnson, but that was mainly a vote against Goldwater. Uh, now... There's no one like like uh, uh, like Johnson. I mean, now I would vote against Clinton or, or, or Trump, but uh, there's no one. There's no one in the two major parties I could vote for. Mm. Uh, as I've written in, in my current anti-empire report, if I have, if I was forced to make a choice between Clinton and and and, and Trump, I would I would choose uh, Trump. Uh, and that's that's because of foreign policy issues. Uh, he, uh, the U.S. foreign policy has been is 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 the world's greatest threat to peace and prosperity and the environment. And I, I cannot support them against any that 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 policy against anything else. Uh, uh, Trump is largely unknown. Uh, what he'll do in, in office is is anyone's guess, but he he has made a number of statements on on foreign policy which indicate some hope. Uh, he he's made it clear that he would be willing to talk to Putin, and he doesn't regard him in the same enemy context as as Clinton does, uh, and even Sanders. Sanders. Uh, I, I support on domestic issues, but he on foreign policy he's not he's not very good. He 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 could win the election over Clinton if he would attack her on her foreign policy uh, policy because uh, she she has done some terrible things which I'm sure all the people who love her have no idea about. He could he could really show her for what she what she is if he would speak in detail about her role. In Honduras and in in uh, Iraq and in and in uh, Syria and especially in Libya, she's she caused a great horror in Libya. So I think Sanders is missing out on a good chance by not exploiting uh, Clinton's foreign policy. Mm. Um, you you said something quite uh, what, what I think would uh, be astonishing to a, a lot of people that the idea that like I think a lot of people do. Uh, clear, recognize uh, the, the the problems with uh, with Hillary Clinton, including a, a large number of Bernie Sanders supporters who uh, you know who who are pledging not to support uh, Hillary should uh, Bernie Sanders not make the nomination. But but they still see her as the lesser of two evils. And uh, what, what are the, what are the... <laughs> between uh, between uh, Clinton and Trump? Oh uh, yeah yeah I don't see. It. 
I, I think she's... But you think she she's is, the, 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 the worst of the two? I think she is a, a neocon, and she, 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 well, she, if she, will, she would bomb anyone if, if, uh, and, 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 and laugh about it. I said she laughed about the horrible death of, of Gaddafi in Libya. Uh, she, she can be charming, uh, but they, they all learn how to do that. And, but behind her charm is, is a, a, a cold-blooded killer, I think. Uh, that may sound very uh, uh, extreme, but if, if you know the details of what she has done and, and what she's advocated, then I think you might agree. Mm. And that's what Sanders should find out about and, and exploit. And he doesn't do that. He, he, he doesn't... Well. He did actually – the one thing that did come up, and I, and I think this may be kind of connecting with what you're saying, uh, there was a, a point where she was basically boasting about uh, her connection with Henry Kissinger. Oh, yeah. And uh, Bernie Sanders came right out and said that uh, like he, he was very critical of, of Henry Kissinger and, and takes pride in the fact that he doesn't consider Henry Kissinger a friend. So that that is kind yeah, of getting – Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, right. And that's, that's one good point. He could he... – there's so much more that he could say on 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 foreign policy. So much more. Well, could you? I know you've been like a a critic of uh, you know foreign policy in South America and in, uh, in Asia, uh, Middle East. But I, I think maybe we need to really drill down on that point uh, with regard to to Bernie Sanders about his. Uh, less than uh, adequate positions on on foreign policy i mean what the, the things that he's saying that uh, that that causes you so much concern uh that you that you well he he refers to hugo chavez of venezuela as quote that dead communist dictator unquote i mean no one with any pretension of being a a, a progressive should 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 make such a remark I mean, it's, it's absurd. It's what we would expect from a, a, a stupid right winger, uh, and he says things like that. Uh, I've, ne- I, I've never heard him, uh, or I haven't, haven't read anything uh, really progressive on foreign policy. Uh, I don't think he, I, I doubt if he's ever used the word imperialism, for example, uh, and, and, and I doubt if he, if he has said that the, the U.S. is largely responsible for the horrible mess of the Middle East with all the refugees. That, that, that is the result of the U.S. government overthrowing uh, the governments of Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and Syria, which is not, not, not quite complete yet. Those four governments, were, and all of them were secular governments. It's very important to keep in mind. He, he overthrew... The four leading, I mean, I mean, the U.S. overthrew the four leading secular governments of the Middle East and South Asia, and it's, we shouldn't be surprised that the replacement of that was a, a fanatic uh, Islamic uh, movement. Uh, we we are responsible for that, and he, I don't think he 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 thinks that way at all. And uh, he's not been uh, his his position with regard to the, the the kind of thawing cold war. You don't find that he'd be a an ideal person to have in that position. 
with, what, which color word? Well, I guess which uh, the the basically with U.S. and uh, Russia to, uh, currently with you know it seems like tensions between the United States and Russia are on the increase, and so I was wondering uh, about uh, Bernie Sanders and and where you would see you know should a, what a president Bernie Sanders would be like in the context of U.S. Russia relations. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not certain, but I don't think that he. Uh, I haven't seen any comment on that, of that kind from him. Uh, um, I, I, I don't expect much along those lines. Uh, the remark I just quoted about Hugo Chavez. I mean, no one who would say that is going to be a is going to be very enlightened on, on Cold War issues. Uh, if you think that a leading uh, a socialist activist in the world is, is just, a, just a, a, a dead communist dictator. I mean, it, it's absurd. A man who was elected uh, legally and, and, and honestly about four or five times uh, should be called a dictator. Uh, and a man who, who, was, who was a real socialist as opposed to Bernie Sanders, who in my opinion is not a socialist at all. I, I've written about this. One of my anti-empire reports a few, a few months ago, uh, I discussed the question, is, is Bernie Sanders a socialist? And my answer is no. So he's, I can't expect him to have any kind of uh, uh, enlightened viewpoint on any Cold War issue. Well, I know that the, the big plus for Bernie, for a lot of people, is his uh, not accepting uh, donations from the big special interests, you know, like Yeah, well, Wall he wouldn't Street. get it anyhow. They, 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 they know who he is, and they, they, they can recognize uh, their enemy very well. And they, they wouldn't, as does the media, you know, I've been, I've been hearing reports the past few days how the, the networks have been ignoring Sanders uh, they, they, they may haven't even covered his speeches very well at all. Uh, they, they know that he's a threat. Uh, 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 as opposed to Clinton, who was who was one of one of the one of the boys. Uh, and, and so, I, 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 if I was forced to choose between Clinton and, and Sanders, I certainly would would choose Sanders. Uh, that's a separate question. Mm. Uh, and I know that a very uh, important uh, uh, element of U.S. foreign policy is with regard to the Middle East and uh, dealings with Israel. And I understand that uh, the uh, American-Israeli Political Action Committee, APAC, uh, has been uh, very influential on, uh, on, on presidents and on Congress. So I, I'm wondering how you would, you know, given those realities, who would be best to have as president – you know, what, like in terms of American-Israeli well, policy between, between Sanders and and Trump, I, I would choose Trump. Really? Yeah, Sanders. You know, he spent time in Israel, and uh, he uh, he's he's Jewish and he, he, he and proud of it, and uh, and he I I, I think I mean it's, it is we're, we're dealing with some unknown areas uh, to a large extent. I would guess that in, in office, Trump would be more hostile or, or, or less uh, acquiescent to Israel than Sanders would be. Uh, Trump has said more than once that he, he, he would be even-handed 
when it comes to Israel, which for an American politician is saying quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, so, again, I, I can't be sure until they were in office, but I, I would expect a, a better policy on Israel from Trump than I would from uh, Sanders. Yeah, I think that the way, though, with, with Mr. Trump, he's been saying some very remarkable things during the course of the campaign. I mean, things about the banning of, of Muslims and surveillance of mosques and building a wall with Mexico and and, and just uh, the, the antics that have been happening through the campaign with uh, protesters being beaten up. And, of course, he's quite surly, as I, I know you've acknowledged uh, some of those negative points. And I, I think that there's a, a sense among a lot of people that this is some kind of a, a wild man. And do we do we really want to trust this guy with the, his finger on the nuclear button? I mean, what would you say? Those yeah, I, I agree. He, 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 with all those things, uh, as, as I wrote, uh, uh, I wouldn't. I, I'd have a hard time being a friend of his because I, I think he's he's kind of obnoxious on, on a personal level. But that is not what concerns me. I'm concerned about foreign policy. I'm concerned about putting an end to the the empire. The empire is going crazy. It's been going crazy for decades, and it's making a mess of the world. And what we have in the Middle East now is, is, is the, the latest example. And I'm, I'm concerned about having someone in the White House who will not be uh, a, a fully grown supporter of, of, of uh, imperialism. And Trump, I think, will not be. Uh, Clinton would be. Sanders would be closer to Clinton than to Trump. But this is, again, this is, we don't know for sure until they're in the office. Uh, Mr. Bloom, I was wondering if, I mean, because you, you mentioned media earlier with regard to uh, ignoring Sanders. I'm wondering if there are other uh, things about the, what you're seeing of the media coverage that, uh, that seems to be manipulating people in, in, a, in an undemocratic way. Are there any particular examples that come to mind? That- well, if you, if you read some of the interviews uh, with Trump, like uh, Stephanopoulos, he's with NBC, right? I believe so. Yes, yes. He he, he he accused he was attacking Putin, and Trump was making uh, somewhat of a defense of, of Putin. And Stephanopoulos said that Putin just he killed journalists. You know, and Trump doesn't know enough to to respond to such things. I've written about that. I've I've given a long list of journalists killed by the U.S. in in recent years. If, if, if Trump could use me as as an advisor, frankly. Uh, and because to 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 fend off all these stupid remarks made to him and against him by the American mass media, these these people on on the networks are really uneducated. They're they're un, un, uninformed. It's embarrassing. If I was a supporter of of, of the government and the foreign policy, I'd be uh, embarrassed at least. Uh, but Stephanopoulos and, and his ilk, they they they're really uninformed. That's, that's why they, they have their jobs they do. If Stephanopoulos knew what I knew, he wouldn't be in that position. He wouldn't be hired. And that's, that's, that's a sad fact of, of our media. Mm. Interesting. So looking forward, um, I mean, what, what are your thoughts about the way this thing is going to play out as we get closer to November? Do you have a pretty good idea of who the, the nominees are going to be? and how well, I, look- I guess. I mean, I don't, I don't have any instant information. Uh, I guess it would be Clinton and Trump. But I'm, I'm glad for the first time in many years to have a, a, an election campaign that is somewhat interesting 
in the past, I wouldn't have paid any attention to all this nonsense going on. But now it's it's fun to watch. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad for that. <laughs> Okay, um, just uh, I guess looking at the parties themselves, the Democrats and the Republicans, it, it seems clear that you you see those parties as pretty much beyond repair. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. So, what, what at what point would you say? I mean, was was it always this way, or was there a point where it was like they had their golden era and then they just kind of deteriorated and into some basic, you know, acolytes yeah. for the establishment? Was this always uh, well, the, the their function? The behavior of them, of, of the individuals, uh, especially amongst the Republicans, is is really shocking. It's uh, embarrassing. Uh, it, it wasn't always that way. There was when, in, in the 1950s when I was growing up. Uh, I mean, there were there were Republicans I could admire somewhat, like like Eisenhower, uh, but now they're all a bunch of clowns, and 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 the. Democrats are not much better. Uh, they, they all they they can't even uh, uh, get a vote in Congress for, for this or that important issue. Uh, it's it's really embarrassing. I mean, if, if, but uh, I'm I'm speaking as an outsider, and I'm going to I vote for the Green Party, and and I'm, I don't have anything to do with the other two, to, to the two major parties. <laughs> Well, William Bloom, it's it's been um, a, a great pleasure uh, have, listen, having this conversation with you and, and hearing your thoughts. And uh, I want to thank you for being my guest and for uh... thank you very much. Okay. Oh, can I can I just mention my website, please? Yes, please. It's uh, WilliamBloom dot o r g, and Bloom is B L U M. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. We've been speaking with author and historian William Bloom. His latest book is America's Deadliest Export, Democracy, The Truth About U.S. Foreign Policy and Everything Else, published by Zed Books in the U.K. and Fernwood Books in Canada. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. We're joined now by Mark Robinowitz. He is the publisher of oilempire.us a political map to connect the dots. And as he uh, describes it, he's been a writer, political activist, ecological campaigner, and permaculture practitioner for over three decades. He's also author of the upcoming Peak Choice, Cooperation or Collapse, an uncensored guide to earth, energy, and money. And he also uh, claims to have been very strongly influenced by uh, one of uh, JFK, the former President John Fitzgerald Kennedy's last initiatives before uh, he was assassinated. So, um, Mark Robinowitz, welcome to our show. Thank you for the invitation. Now, you, you, I was just mentioning the fact that you, uh, you're, you're the influence of uh, John F. Kennedy that you mentioned. You want, you want to maybe elaborate a little bit more, just so we uh, get a good idea of where you're coming from? Well, when trying to make sense of the confusion and bizarreness of politics in the United States, it's worth going back 
half a century to look at what President Kennedy was trying to do when he was removed from office. He had called for an end to the nuclear arms race and converting the military war machine towards peaceful purposes. It was perhaps the primary motivation for his removal from office in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And it's worth asking, what would the 1960s have been if the Cold War had ended, if the war on Vietnam had been stopped, and we had used the resources for destruction for creative, peaceful purposes? We could have many discussions about that. But the bottom line is that was a tipping point in the evolution of the United States as a society with grave consequences for the rest of the world. Mm. And uh, the 60s did end up being a very turbulent period. Um, I just wanted to, uh, I mean, we, we saw not just uh, John F. Kennedy, but uh, the assassinations of uh, uh, Martin Luther King and the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. And uh, I... And Malcolm X. I, and Malcolm X, yes. And, uh, of course, I certainly, you, uh, I, as well documented on your website, and, and certainly uh, a lot of our listeners uh, would strongly suspect that those were all uh, what they call straight state crimes against democracy, that these were, uh, you know, as you mentioned, an instance of uh, these inconvenient entities being removed from office. Um so I think that does have some implications for what uh, the politics and, and, and what the whole, you know, the, the spectacle that we're seeing before us and, and whether or not a legitimate reformer, uh, anyone who really challenges a, a system that's corrupt, I mean, what, uh, you know, the likelihood of that happening through this or, or any other presidential campaign. Well, there are many commentators over the years and decades who have observed that to be president of the United States, you have to have proved your loyalty to the empire, and that tr that's true for Democrats as well as Republicans. And the likely nominee on the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton, the Clintons have a long history of working with the national security state. Uh, some of your listeners may know about Iran-Contra in the 1980s. Some of that happened in Arkansas with the Clintons providing some strategic cover for it. You have Obama uh, with his reasonably well-documented ties to the Central Intelligence Agency as a younger man. So it's not just the Republicans that have this connection. The Democrats, at least the establishment Democrats, have it as well. As far as I know, Bernie Sanders, the challenger on the Democratic side, doesn't have that connection and therefore is extremely unlikely to be allowed to win the, the race. Mm -hmm. um, after watching the election uh, spectacle in my country for three decades, I've come to the conclusion that it's similar to televised wrestling. It's a bruising contest, it's entertaining, but it's rigged in advance. And this particular campaign in 2016 poses even more bizarre aspects of that at least on the Republican side. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, I, I think that there might be some uh, wrestling fans who would be offended by that comparison, but uh, I was... Uh, but, Comparing uh, them to politicians, yeah, <laughs> I know they might be offended. But, yeah, well, let, let's... We, we, you're talking about the, the Republican situation. I mean, we've got, uh, uh, well, Donald Trump, who appears to be the de facto... Uh, 
candidate for the Republicans. I mean, he's certainly doing very well. It's he's not it's it's not assured yet, but uh, he he seems to have a very strong lead over the other contenders who, frankly, don't seem to be much better. But uh, then again, I, I don't know how loyal say Ted Cruz is to that uh, establishment that you mention. Well, and Cruz is certainly part of the establishment. He's got a bunch of warmongers behind him, but he's more of a fundamentalist religious candidate. The the neocons seem to have been circling around John Ellis Bush or Jeb Bush, but his campaign mercifully has gone away, and unless they resurrect him at the convention this summer, um, we're not going to get another President Bush. Mm-hmm. So we have one thing to be grateful for, at least. Yeah. Um, one thing about uh, Trump, and then this came up with my earlier conversation with William Bloom, is that, uh, I mean, he's not getting, uh, he, he's, he's wealthy enough to, to not have to be at the, uh, the, the, the beck and call of, of Wall Street. And, of course, he's been speaking out uh, consistently against these, uh, free trade agreements uh, that uh, you know it seems to me the establishment likes to keep in place and uh, even has uh, been you know n- not as uh, it's not a given that he's going to be hostile toward Putin the way it seems you know the mainstream media it's given you know all the messaging we seem to be hearing it's all like if if you don't if if you if you're not critical of Putin and and calling him some sort of a fascist dictator, well, there's got to be you 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 can't be president. There's something wrong with you. Well, yeah. when Obama was running for president eight years ago, he was also making critical comments about free trade, and one of his aides was caught telling a group of Canadian uh, leaders that it was just an act and to ignore the speeches, and Obama was solidly on board with it. Bill Clinton did the same thing in 1992, saying that free trade agreements were a disaster, and then he went on to sign the NAFTA treaty. So what Trump actually believes, as opposed to what he says, you know, is anybody's guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's pushing for a very aggressive military escalation in the Middle East. So on some of the imperial orthodoxies, he has... Uh, perhaps better points of view than Hillary Clinton, there are some ways he's actually even more dangerous. Mm, well, I mean, we've heard of his, uh, uh, what he said about Muslims and about walls and uh, about torture. Right. So, the, yeah, those things And seem... bombing Syria and a bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. The real question is, with Hillary Clinton, it's pretty clear what the interests are behind her. But given... Trump's incredible rise, and given how the media gives him so much attention, what would be interesting to see in the next few months is what are the forces that are actually behind uh, the rise of Donald Trump. It can't just be his organization or his speeches. There must be a bit more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Well, then, what, what about Bernie then, Bernie Sanders? I mean, it. I mean, it, it's not looking good for him at this point. But I mean, you never know. But I'm, I'm kind of wondering. I guess maybe in, in, as we look back over the course of this campaign, 
looking at the situation from the perspective of deep politics, do, do you have a, a sense of, of, of where Bernie fits into this campaign? I mean, I, I've heard it suggested, uh, I, I believe it was Bruce Dixon of Black Agenda Report who, who called him basically saying that he's sort of serving the role of sort of capturing, uh, basically granting some legitimacy in the end to the Hillary Clinton campaign because when he loses – then all of these people who have been following his campaign that he's brought in, people who may not even have been involved in the Democratic Party, then would end up uh, essentially being – because I think he has uh, made it clear that uh, should he lose, that he would be backing Hillary. I think uh, what Dixon called him was a sheepdog for yes, the that's it. campaign. Yeah. And that seems to be pretty clear. Now, not everybody – who is supporting Bernie Sanders is going to automatically vote for Hillary. But having Donald Trump out there as the opposition is going to scare a lot of people into holding their nose. And um, one of the problems we have is we don't have a parliamentary system like you do in Canada. So um, a Green Party or a new Democratic Party or something like that, even if they get a few percent of the votes here, doesn't really go anywhere. But the real control, the real way to rig the election is through the media coverage. And Bernie has not gotten that much good press. He's gotten more since he's actually won some states. But Hillary is, of course, the choice of nearly all of the media, and the stories reflect that. What? I mean, just uh, assume, like, let's say you suppose that... uh Bernie was able, because he has done astonishing well in spite of uh, the, the media coverage you allude to. What if he were to somehow climb past Hillary in, in delegates? What, what if he were to prevail? I mean, is that, how would you see things playing out in that instance if it was, say, a, a Bernie versus Trump campaign? Well, or have you pretty much ruled out that possibility? Considering how loyal the Clintons have been for the empire for decades. I think the odds of that are pretty low. Um, I mean, I, I, my candidate is none of the above at this point. I don't really think that choosing one side or the other really is going to make that much difference at this point. We don't elect the Joint Chiefs of Staff. We don't elect the directors of the spy agencies. We don't elect the heads of the corporations. And anyone in that position is going to have to bow down and to their agenda. Now, the rulers of our country are not all in precise agreement. They have their differences of opinion over how to manage the empire, just as any other group of people have differences over how to do things. But I am, I mean, obviously I would rather have Sanders and Clinton, but I don't think the odds of that are very high. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'm just kind of wanting to... Uh explore this idea of uh, you know of, of a good um, you know good people I mean not everybody in politics is corrupt or at least not everybody goes in corrupt there are people who uh, genuinely seek to you know create a, a better uh, communities better countries I, I I tend to believe that but because of the nature of the system they they end up kind of getting weeded out along the way and I'm uh, I mean, you, you mentioned one instrument being the media. There's the role of money in terms of organizing people. But uh, I'm wondering if we could just sort of maybe reflect on, on some of the various mechanisms by with which uh, 
people end up getting weeded out? Um, you know, what would stop a, uh, um, you know, a genuine person? I mean... Uh, well, the candidate I voted for in 2008, Cynthia McKinney, she had been a six-term member of Congress from Georgia, and she was forced out by the de- her fellow Democrats for standing up to the Bush administration. She introduced a resolution to impeach Bush, and so the Democrats ran a moderate challenger against her and after a couple times succeeded in throwing her out of Congress. There was also Dennis Kucinich from Cleveland, who was also in Congress, and the Democrats redistricted him, and he lost his seat as a result of that, too. There's many tactics to do that with. Uh, there's bad media coverage, there's pressure, money coming in to challenge. Um, the, the list of options for the system are, are many. But part of the problem also is that the whole binary approach, that you have to have one side or the other, limits a range of broader possibilities that we could have if we were thinking more clearly. Mm-hmm. I mean, why do we have to choose between lethal injection or the electric chairs? Certainly there are other options that we could have in our, in our world. It's a little better in Canada with your parliamentary system, but even there, the scale of what we need to keep the earth viable and to turn off the global war system so that we can use the resources for our collective survival, um, that, that's not really in the political system almost anywhere. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I guess you know one more uh, um, mechanism. You know, I mean, it would be uh, what happened to Robert Kennedy. Uh, he was he was in Bernie's shoes, you might say. Uh, there's a, some some it seems somewhat similar there, um, and he he ended up being assassinated uh, late. I guess toward the end of the campaign, but uh, before the all of the primaries were completed, if I'm not mistaken. He was killed immediately after he won the California primary, where it became obvious that he was going to become the candidate of the Democratic Party and likely would have defeated Richard Nixon in the general election. So, But he was actually, from a stronger point of view, than Bernie Sanders. He had a better view on peace, and he was also even more popular than Sanders. And if he had been allowed to live, it's very likely he would have become president. And it's well established at this point that Senator Robert Kennedy was interested in reopening the investigation of what was done to his brother. And that was, of course, too dangerous for the system to allow. You know, um, you you were talking about the, the the differences between the two major parties, as the difference between death by lethal eject, injection and death by the electric chair. I'm reminded of a, of an allegory by a uh, well by a figure that actually is, uh, appears fairly prominently on your site, uh, Mike Rupert. Uh, he compared it to the, the the two rival crime families, the Genoveses and the Gambinos. <laughs> so I I don't know that sound. I, I find that's a kind of a compelling. Uh, uh, comparison there, uh, they because these uh, they, they're running 
basically on behalf that the two parties are representing these e elite economic interests that are, are not necessarily in line with those of, of regular working people or, or the environment. Well, and seeing Sanders do relatively well and seeing Trump essentially take over the Republican Party suggests that there's a lot of grassroots dissatisfaction on both sides. It's a bit confused. It's not quite as focused as it could be. But you have a lot of Democrats who are not at all happy that Hillary is going to be anointed their um, leader. And on the Republican side, there's a lot of dissatisfaction of the Republican establishment that takes their base for granted. But having said that, the idea of Donald Trump being the answer is you know, kind of a bad joke. Mm. Um, but it shows that we're in the middle of a huge shakeup in politics. And where this is going, there's far too many variables for anyone really to know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can even offer a, a best guess. As, I mean, because I, I hear for one thing that there's a, a, a large contingent of the Sanders movement that uh, that they ain't going to vote for Hillary. They're going to go with Jill Stein of the Greens and uh, or the Green Party. And that uh, that would also introduce uh, that that element there. Uh, it makes me wonder then uh, what your thoughts are about the Sanders movement, irrespective of what Bernie himself could do, the movement behind him and, and the potential there. Well, I think back to Ralph Nader when he ran in 2000, where you had a lot of Nader voters who said there's no way they're going to vote for Gore. And then when it came actually time to go and vote, half of them actually did vote for Gore, and the other half, such as myself, uh, stayed with Ralph Nader. Um, and I suspect something similar will happen, especially if Trump is the opposition to Hillary Clinton. You'll have a lot of people who will hold their nose and vote for Hillary as the lesser of evils, and you'll have other people who might choose Trump, and you'll have a lot of people who won't know what to do. And uh, you, you've just reminded me, uh, when you brought up the, the Gore-Nader uh, issue, that in 2000, uh, the, that, that was I mean, basically you know, Nader getting the blame, but a huge factor there was also uh, the uh, vote rigging, you know, the, the number of uh, people who would normally vote Democrat being just left off the ballot, and how the Democratic Party to this day hasn't really addressed that. Nor have they addressed the whole issue of these uh, voting machines, uh, the Diebold machines that uh, are not exactly reliable in terms of uh, turning out authentic results. Well, because 2004 for our presidential race was even more rigged than 2000 in Florida. You had several states that were flipped. Uh, John Kerry clearly won, but he stood down. Uh, it's also been used in a number of congressional races, and it can be used by both parties. Um, it's not only the Republicans who rig votes. Uh, and the idea that we actually trust software companies with secret software to count our ballots in private, the, the fact that that's not an enormous scandal, that that's been allowed to happen through public apathy, is it's incredible. Your guess... 
you know. So w- would you say then that – well, first, I mean, as far as uh, the vote rigging uh, is going, are we seeing any ed- evidence of that in these primaries? Uh, I've heard rumors of it, but frankly, I'm not really following it because my guess is Sanders is probably a lot more popular than the Democratic establishment ever bargained for. But with superdelegates and media coverage and other forms of manipulation – I'll be extremely surprised if Hillary Clinton is not the nominee. And on the Republican side, the Republicans are sort of all, they're even floating the idea of finding some third party to, or changing who gets to run at the convention this summer to keep Trump out, because their polling shows that Hillary Clinton, or Bernie Sanders for that matter, would clearly beat Trump. And you have big donors to the Republican Party now who are worried it's going to damage their control of Congress and local races. And, you know, the Democrats of today are like the Republicans of yesterday, and the Republicans of today are more like the John Birch Society of yesterday. And plus you have all the extreme right-wing white supremacist types who are coming into the Trump campaign, and that is probably scarier than anything. Because they didn't rise up to the electoral system, and it's not going to be going away after the election, even if Hillary, or even if Bernie Sanders, for that matter, is the winner. Now, your website, oilempire.us, it's, uh, it, it focuses on a number of, uh, of issues, but it, it, it basically connects all of those dots, peak oil, uh, and climate change, and 9-11, and and uh, you know, presidential politics, uh, it's uh, it's it's quite a treasure trove. I, I've been reading it for for years now, and I guess I'm wanting to know, in light of this conversation, how you see peak oil and climate change and, and environmental and economic collapse, which appear to be underway. How do you see them? impacting the politics. Are there any clear signatures as you watch this campaign? I think Trump is the biggest signature of it at all, because um, a number of years ago I heard a presentation from the author Richard Heinberg, who suggested that energy decline and ecological decline would be seen for their symptoms rather than their causes. So people would see the start of the decline of energy as looking like a recession that kept going on until it became a depression. And we're starting to see signs of that with the decline of conventional oil, the rise of tar sands in Canada and fracking in the United States. But as it becomes more difficult to maintain the growth that industrial society has developed, you're going to see a lot of people hurting from the consequences economically. And when economic circumstances decline for large societies, that is fertile ground for demagogues of all types, with the classic example being Germany in 1929. Now, there's a lot of differences for what we're experiencing from that example, but the rise of Trump basically saying it's all somebody else's fault, I, I see that accelerating, and I see Trump you know, paving the way for far more demagogues in the future rather than less. But uh, do you see that uh, 
that peaking in uh, this willing to willingness to uh, you know point to other people as the reason for their problems uh, I would hope that we could get to peak blame, but my my guess is we're nowhere near that, and I really hope to be wrong on that. Um, the antidote to the blame is for communities to take responsibility, to relocalize production, to relocalize food production, to have community uh, economies that are focused on regionalism instead of globalism, to take responsibility for helping to pilot the spaceship Earth that we all live on together. The more that communities are more locally resilient, the more insulated we will be from these types of um, demagoguery that threaten to disrupt uh, social cohesion. Mm. Yeah, that's true in Canada, that's true in Europe, that's true in Asia, it's true anywhere, because these are going to be issues that affect all of us. Is there anything more you can say in ter- I mean, as we see these developments, uh, not just politically, of course, but the, 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 the wider uh, environmental uh, uh, crises that are taking place? What, what, do we, what more do we need to do uh, you know, to, to kind of you know, not just survive, but hopefully reverse, reverse the tide on, on this uh, precip- pre- precipice that we seem to be heading towards? Well, part of it is to recognize that we are at peak everything. We're not just at peak energy. We're at peak communication, peak culture, peak knowledge. And we know how to reverse a lot of ecological destruction. We know how to grow food without destroying uh, the planet. We know how to use much less energy and live well. But it's, more of, it's as much of a cultural problem as a political or financial problem. We have to see the world is interconnected in a good way. There's globalism of transnational corporations and militaries. There's also globalism of of realizing that we're all human beings on the planet together and we're all going to sink or swim together. Uh, We've used half the oil. How do we want to use the other half? Do we want to use it to build a world where we can take care of each other? or to have endless war fighting over what's left. That's essentially part of the choice that we face. On that note, I'm afraid I have to leave you now, but I I really enjoyed speaking with you, Mark. Uh, It's uh, it's, uh, been a great pleasure, and uh, again, uh, kudos on your your website and on your upcoming uh, book. Uh, When is it being released soon? Uh, It's going to be after the election. I think that's probably a better timing for it. But you can follow it at peakchoice.org, and the electoral materials at www.oilempire.us. Okay. Mark Rabinovich, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you again. I've been speaking with Mark Rabinovich. He is the publisher of oilempire.us and a, a, a writer, political activist, ecological campaigner, and permaculture practitioner. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are now also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. 
You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.